Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Globe Gazette for December 20, 2023. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. On the front page, the headline in Election 2024, Colorado Top Court Bans Trump from Ballot. Supreme Court May Have Final Say on Removal. A divided Colorado Supreme Court on Tuesday declared former President Donald Trump ineligible for the White House under the U.S. Constitution's Insurrection Clause and removed him from the state's presidential primary ballot, setting up a likely showdown in the nation's highest court to decide whether the frontrunner for the GOP nomination can remain in the race. The decision from a court whose justices were all appointed by Democratic governors marks the first time in history that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment has been used to disqualify a presidential candidate. A majority of the court holds that Trump is disqualified from holding the office of president under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the court wrote in its 4-3 to decision. Colorado's highest court overturned a ruling from a district court judge who found that Trump incited an insurrection for his role in the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol, but said he could not be barred from the ballot because it was unclear that the provision was intended to cover the presidency. The court stayed its decision until January 4, or until the U.S. Supreme Court rules on the case. Colorado officials say the issue must be settled by January 5, the deadline for the state to print its presidential primary ballots. We do not reach these conclusions lightly, wrote the court's majority. We are mindful of the magnitude and weight of the questions now before us. We are likewise mindful of our solemn duty to apply the law without fear or favor and without being swayed by public reaction to the decisions that the law mandates we reach. Trump's attorneys had promised to appeal any disqualification immediately to the nation's highest court, which has the final say about constitutional matters. The Colorado Supreme Court issued a completely flawed decision tonight and we will swiftly file an appeal to the United States Supreme Court and a concurrent request for a stay of this deeply undemocratic decision, Trump campaign spokesman Steve Chung said in a statement on Tuesday night. Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel labeled the decision election interference and said the RNC's legal team intends to help Trump fight the ruling. Trump lost Colorado by 13 percentage points in 2020 and doesn't need the state to win next year's presidential election. But the danger for the former president is that more courts and election officials will follow Colorado's lead and exclude Trump from must-win states. Dozens of lawsuits have been filed nationally to disqualify Trump under Section 3, which was designed to keep former Confederates from returning to government after the Civil War. 
It bars from office anyone who swore an oath to support the Constitution and then engaged in insurrection or rebellion against it and has been used only a handful of times since the decade after the Civil War. I think it may embolden other state courts or secretaries to act now that the bandage has been ripped off. Derek Mueller, a Notre Dame law professor who has closely followed the Section 3 cases, said after Tuesday's ruling, this is a major threat to Trump's candidacy. The Colorado case is the first where the plaintiffs succeeded. After a week-long hearing in November, District Judge Sarah B. Wallace found that Trump indeed engaged in insurrection by inciting the January 6th attack on the Capitol, and her ruling that kept him on the ballot was a fairly technical one. Trump's attorneys convinced Wallace that because the language in Section 3 refers to officers of the United States, who take an oath to support the Constitution, it must not apply to the President, who is not included as an officer of the United States elsewhere in the document, and whose oath is to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. The provision also says officers covered include Senator, Representative, Electors of the President and Vice President, and all others under the United States, but doesn't name the presidency. The state's highest court didn't agree, siding with attorneys for six Colorado Republicans and unaffiliated voters who argued that it was nonsensical to imagine that the framers of the amendment, fearful of former Confederates returning to power, would bar them from low-level offices, but not the highest one in the land. President Trump asks us to hold that Section 3 disqualifies every oath-breaking insurrectionist except the most powerful one, and that it bars oath-breakers from virtually every office, both state and federal, except the highest one in the land, the court's majority opinion said. Both results are inconsistent with the plain language and history of Section 3. The court's majority also dismissed Trump attorneys' arguments that Trump wasn't responsible for his supporters' violent attack, which was intended to halt Congress' certification of the presidential vote. President Trump then gave a speech in which he literally exhorted his supporters to fight at the Capitol, they wrote. The left-leaning group that brought the Colorado case Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington hailed the ruling. Our Constitution clearly states that those who violate their oath by attacking our democracy are barred from serving in government, its president, Noah Bookbinder, said in a statement. The ruling stands in contrast with the Minnesota Supreme Court, which last month decided the state party could put anyone at once on its primary ballot. It dismissed a Section 3 lawsuit, but said the plaintiffs could try again during the general election. Also on the front page, an article entitled, Illegal Crossings Continue to Surge in Remote Regions. Congress, White House, 
way major asylum limits. Hundreds of dates are written on concrete-filled steel columns erected along the U.S. border with Mexico to memorialize when the Border Patrol has repaired illicit openings in the would-be barriers. Yet no sooner are fixes made than another column is sawed, torched, and chiseled for large groups of migrants to enter, usually with no agents in sight. The breaches stretch about 30 miles on a washboard gravel road west of Lukeville, an Arizona desert town that consists of an official border crossing, restaurant, and duty-free shop. The repair dates are mostly since spring, when the flat desert region dotted with saguaro cactus became the busiest corridor for illegal crossings. A border patrol tour in Arizona for news organizations showed improvements in custody conditions and processing times, but flows are overwhelming. The huge spike in migrants and resulting chaos at various border locations increased frustration with the Biden administration's immigration policies and put pressure on Congress to reach a deal on asylum. The numbers nudged the White House and some congressional Democrats to consider major limits to asylum as part of the deal for Ukraine aid. As Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas left closed-door talks with congressional leaders Friday, dozens of migrants from Senegal, Guinea, and Mexico walked along the Arizona border wall built during Donald Trump's presidency, looking to surrender to agents. A Mexican woman walked briskly with her two daughters and five grandchildren, ages two to seven, after being dropped off by a bus in Mexico and instructed by guides. They told us where to go, to go straight, said Alicia Sante of Guatemala, who waited in a border patrol tent in Lukeville for initial processing. Sante, 22, and her 16-year-old sister hoped to join their father in New York. The dates when wall breaches were fixed are often bunched together. One cluster showed five dates from April 12 to October 3. On Friday, agents drove looking for openings and found one on a column that was repaired twice, on October 31 and again December 5. Smuggling organizations remove a few inches from the bottom of 30-foot steel poles, which agents say can take as little as half an hour. Columns sway back and forth like a cantilever swing, creating space for large groups to walk through. Welders often attach metal bars horizontally across several columns to prevent swinging, but there are plenty of other places to saw. Our officers and agents are responding to large groups of migrants, which means that some of our agents aren't on the line, not really monitoring for some of those cuts, said Troy Miller, U.S. Customs and Border Protection's acting commissioner. If we don't have anybody to respond, then you're going to see what you're seeing. The number of daily arrivals is unprecedented, Miller said, with illegal crossings topping 10,000 some days across the border in December. On Monday, CBP suspended cross-border rail traffic in the Texas cities of Eagle Pass and El Paso, 
in response to migrants riding freight trains through Mexico, hopping off just before entering the U.S. The Lukeville border crossing is closed, as is a pedestrian entry in San Diego, so more officials can be assigned to the migrant influx. Arrests for illegal crossings topped 2 million for the first time each of the U.S. government's last two budget years, reflecting technological changes that increased global mobility and ills prompting people to leave their homes, including wealth inequality, natural disasters, political repression, and organized crime. Miller said solutions go well beyond CBP, which includes the Border Patrol, to other agencies whose responsibilities include long-term detention and asylum screenings. On cuts in the wall, Miller said Mexican authorities need to step up. Arrests in the Border Patrol's Tucson sector, which includes Lukeville, topped all nine sections on the Mexican border from May to October, except June, according to the latest public figures. It is a throwback to the early 2000s before traffic shifted to Texas, when the, but the demographics are much different. Arrests of people and families neared 72,000 in the Tucson sector from October 1 through December 9, more than nine times the same period last year. That's a big change from when almost all migrants were adult men. Arrests of non-Mexicans topped 75,000, nearly quadruple the number from a year ago, and more than half of all sector arrests. Singalese people accounted for more than 9,000 arrests in Tucson from October 1 to December 9, while arrests of people from Guinea and India each topped 4,000. Agents encountered migrants from about four dozen Eastern Hemisphere countries. Agents who pick up migrants near the wall drive them to Lukeville to start the processing. They drive about 45 minutes to a station in Ajo that was built to detain 100 people, but housed 325 on Friday. Some are bused to other Border Patrol sectors, but most are sent to Tucson, about two hours away. At a sprawl of white tents near Tucson International Airport, that was built for about 1,000 people. Some migrants are flown to Texas <clears throat> for processing. Others are released within two days as mandated by a court order in the Tucson sector. CBP policy limits detention to 72 hours. Most are released with notices to appear in immigration courts, which are backlogged with more than 3 million cases. Some are detained longer by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Discussions in Congress may produce the most significant immigration legislation since 1996. Potential changes include more mandatory detention and broader use of a rule to raise thresholds for initial asylum screenings. On page 2, we find an article entitled Retailers have improved their delivery speeds this year. That's good news for late holiday shoppers. Haven't ordered any of your holiday gifts yet? Well, you might find solace in discovering some of America's biggest retailers are working to increase their shipping speeds 
to please shoppers expecting faster and faster deliveries. Walmart, Target, and Amazon are all in on the shopping shipping wars. A move retail experts say will help them maintain a competitive edge against low-cost Chinese retailers Shine and Timu. For Walmart and Target, their investments are also aimed at narrowing the gap in delivery speed with Amazon, which has set the standard for fast shipping and remains the king of speed. Amazon packages have been arriving at the doors of Prime customers even faster this year under the company's new distribution model, which divides the country into eight regions and predominantly ships items from warehouses in those areas. The idea, according to Amazon, is to get shipments to travel shorter distances with fewer touch points, which helps the company not only speed up deliveries, but also cut down on costs. Previously, the Seattle-based e-commerce giant used to fulfill orders from warehouses across the country. In July, it said 76% of customers' orders were being fulfilled within their region, up from 62% before the change. We remain on pace to deliver the fastest delivery speeds for prime customers in our 29-year history, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy said in October during an earnings call with analysts. Company executives have noted Faster shipping is also being driven by Amazon's expansion of same-day delivery, which was first rolled out in 2015 to Prime members who currently pay $139 a year for free two-day shipping and other perks. Same-day delivery sites are smaller warehouses that are located in metro areas and predominantly store the top 100,000 products customers want. Amazon Vice President of Delivery Experience, Sarah Matthew, said the company currently has 55 of these sites in the country, and it has plans to double the number in the coming years. Psychologically, fast delivery is very important to the consumer when ordering online, said Neil Saunders, Managing Director of Global Data Retail. That is why everyone is trying to push out more into this space even though it's very expensive to support and it often requires a lot of new infrastructure. To catch up, Walmart and Target have been pouring money into warehouse upgrades, new facilities, or other efforts that they say will also help trim costs. Walmart uses more than 4,000 of its stores across the country as fulfillment centers and delivery hubs for online orders. In November, the company said it would be adding 40 so-called parcel stations to stores in nine states by the end of the year in an effort to process more goods and get them faster to customers. The nation's largest retailer said many of the stations, which are like many post offices that receive and deliver packages, would be operating during the holiday season. At the same time, The Bentonville, Arkansas-based company is working to overhaul its warehouses through automation to help speed up delivery to stores and customers. Walmart is doing this in various ways. It's automating all 42 of its regional distribution centers, 
which hold non-perishable items and ship goods to replenish stores. Furthermore, it's building four automated warehouses that handle perishable items, and it's planning to add more than 100 smaller facilities that are connected to its stores and handle online orders. Since last year, Walmart has also opened its first three fully automated next-generation fulfillment centers, which hold a deeper assortment of the most wanted items and cut down the number of steps it takes to pack and ship orders from 12 to 5. The company has said these hubs, as well as changes to its transportation network, have made it able to drastically increase the number of orders it's able to ship the next day. The goal, Walmart says, is to double the number of customer orders fulfilled daily and expand expand next and two-day shipping to nearly 90% of the U.S. Meanwhile, Target is aiming to increase its shipping speed by augmenting its own warehouses, called sortation centers, with a $100 million investment announced earlier this year. Sortation centers receive packages for online orders from 30 to 40 surrounding Target stores that are sorted, batched, and routed for delivery to local neighborhoods by a third-party carrier or shipped, which Target owns. The warehouses are expected to double their delivery volume to more than 50 million packages this year, with a growing number of items delivered to customers the next day. The company, which currently has 10 around the country and plans a modest increase to at least 5 by early 2006, said it expects to deliver 9 million packages from sortation centers during the holiday season. These facilities have transformed how we move inventory with speed and precision to guest doorsteps, Target's Executive Vice President and Chief Operations Officer John Mulligan told analysts earlier this year. Though both Walmart and Target use their physical footprint to help fulfill online orders, Jason Goldberg, the Chief Commerce Strategy Officer at the advertising plant Publicis, noted that Amazon has far more warehouse space and trucks than Walmart and Target. He said even if both Target and Walmart were to dramatically add more delivery hubs, they still wouldn't be able to catch up with Amazon. It's almost hard to imagine you could ever catch up with Amazon's model, Goldberg added. In National and World News on page 3, we find an article entitled Dozens Killed in Strikes in the Israel-Hamas War. UN Council Members Again Postpone Vote in Attempt to Halt Fighting. The Israeli Army raided and detained staff at two of the last functioning hospitals in Gaza's north, where the defense minister said Tuesday that troops were working to completely clear out Hamas militants. Israel bombarded towns across southern Gaza with airstrikes, killing at least 45 Palestinians and pressing ahead with its offensive, with renewed backing from the United States despite rising international alarm. UN Security Council members were in intense negotiations Tuesday on an Arab-sponsored resolution to spur desperately needed 
humanitarian aid deliveries to Gaza during some kind of a halt in the fighting, trying to avoid another veto by the U.S. A vote on the resolution, first postponed from Monday, was pushed back again until Wednesday as the U.S. asked for more time. Talks continued in an effort to get the Biden administration to abstain or vote in favor of the resolution. We're still working through the modalities of the resolution, UN Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said earlier in the day. It's important for us that the rest of the world understand what's at stake here and what Hamas did on the 7th of October and how Israel has a right to defend itself against those threats. The Israeli Defense Minister, Yoav Gallant, said Israeli forces were entering Hamas tunnel network in northern Gaza as part of a final clearing of militants from the region. The densely built urban north, including Gaza City, has seen ferocious fighting between troops and militants, with Palestinian health officials reporting dozens of people killed in bombardment in recent days. Israeli troops raided a series of hospitals and shelters in the north, detaining men in a search for militants and expelling others taking refuge there. Gallant said in southern Gaza, operations will take months, including the military assault on Khan Unis, the territory's second-largest city. We will not stop until we reach our goals, he said. The health ministry in Hamas-run Gaza said Tuesday the death toll since the start of the war on October 7 rose to more than 19,600. Israel said Tuesday it killed a prominent Hamas financier in an airstrike on Rafah in southern Gaza, without specifying when. In central Gaza, at least 15 people were killed in strikes overnight, according to hospital records. Among the dead were a mother and her four children as they sat around a fire, according to an AP reporter who filmed the aftermath. And from Texas, an article entitled Groups File Lawsuit Over New Texas Migrant Law. Controversial Arrest Powers Draw Fire from White House and Mexico. The White House and Mexico's president on Tuesday came out strongly against a new Texas law that would allow police to arrest migrants who illegally cross into the U.S. and empower local judges to order them to leave the country. Also Tuesday, civil rights groups and Texas' largest border county filed a lawsuit calling the measure that Republican Governor Greg Abbott signed into law less than 24 hours earlier an unconstitutional reach over the U.S. government's authority on immigration. The Texas law that takes effect in March could be the test of how aggressively a state can limit immigration and a surge in illegal crossings in remote areas that has escalated pressure on Congress to reach a deal on asylum. Abbott said Tuesday that Texas is going to set dramatic lengths because of frustration over the Biden administration's immigration policies. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre criticized the state's approach as extreme and dehumanizing to immigrants. She would not say whether the Justice Department would challenge the law.
And now an article entitled Google will pay $700 million in App Store Settlement. Company reaches deal over anti-competitive payment practices. Google agreed, to, Google agreed to pay $700 million and make other concessions to settle allegations that it stifled competition against its Android App Store, the same issue that went to trial in another case that could result in bigger changes. Though Google struck the deal with state attorneys general in September, the settlement's terms weren't revealed until late Monday in documents filed in San Francisco federal court. The disclosure came a week after a federal court jury rebuked Google for deploying anti-competitive tactics in its Play Store for Android app. The deal includes $630 million to compensate U.S. consumers funneled into a payment processing system that state attorneys general alleged drove up the prices for digital transactions within apps downloaded from the Play Store. That store caters to the Android software that powers most of the world's smartphones. And that does it for today's reading of the Globe Gazette for December 20, 2023. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to the reading of The Messenger for December 20, 2023. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. The headline on the front page reads, Nipple reflects on 45 years of service. Brett Knipple always wanted to be a law enforcement officer when he was growing up. In those days, the late 1970s, officer candidates had to be 21 to serve. So after graduating high school and working at Land O'Lakes, Knipple spent those few years preparing for his future career. In the meantime, I did all the civil service testing the written test, strength and agility, all that kind of stuff, said Gnipple, who is currently a deputy with the Webster County Sheriff's Office. I got on the civil service list and just waited. The opportunity to join the Fort Dodge Police Department as a patrolman came just three months after Gnipple's first birth, 21st birthday. He started in March 1979 and stayed with the Fort Dodge Police Department, FDPD, until 1998 when he moved over to the Webster County Sheriff's Office. Now Knipple is closing in on the end of a 45-year career that spanned two law enforcement agencies. Iowa Code does not allow anyone aged 66 or older to be a full-time certified law enforcement officer, said Knipple's 66th birthday is rapidly approaching while his last last day on duty <clears throat> will be thursday knipple's retirement goes into effect on monday the day before his 66th birthday on tuesday knipple was honored at the webster county board of supervisors meeting and was presented several plaques commemorating his service in the afternoon, there was a retirement reception at the Law Enforcement Center. Around the room were posters with photos of Nipple throughout the years, as well as numerous newspaper clippings from his career. I think it's monumental that somebody like Brett can spend 45 years serving our community, 
Sheriff Luke Fleener said. That's kind of exceptional, because it is a difficult job. For now, Knipple's retirement plans are to stay busy farming crops and cattle on his wife Margot's family farm. Knipple's 45 years in uniform were anything but boring. In between writing speeding tickets and making arrests, he helped deliver several babies when their mothers weren't able to make it to the hospital and emergency medical services weren't able to get there in time. Less than 18 months into his career at the FDPD, Gnipple was wounded when he was struck by a bullet by being shot at as he walked out of the police station, then located at the Fort Dodge Municipal Building. A Messenger article from the time reported that about 9 p.m. on August 11, 1980, Pearl John Rauhauser, 53, drove up to the door of the police station and fired a 22 caliber rifle at Knipple, who was a patrolman and was walking down the steps at the time. The bullet went through Knipple's left thigh, then entered the right thigh, where it got lodged. <clears throat> a spokesman at Trinity Regional Hospital said he would need to wear a cast, but there wouldn't be any permanent damage. Prior to the shooting, Rauhauser had made threatening phone calls to judges and other officials saying he was going to shoot a policeman. The article reported Rauhauser was apprehended a short time later and charged with attempted murder and going armed with the intent to do bodily harm. Another messenger article reported that Rauhauser was angry at Nipple because the officer had filed a harassment charge against him after Rauhauser had made numerous threatening phone calls to the police station when Knipple was on duty as a dispatcher. Rauhauser later pleaded guilty to the attempted murder charge and was sentenced to up to 10 years in prison. Knipple recalls one incident that will forever stick out in his mind. While on patrol with the FDPD, he was sent to a call where two little boys around seven or eight years old were playing with flammable liquid and accidentally set themselves on fire and were severely injured. That one hits me hard because they were the same age as my kid, he said. In July 1989, Knipple received a letter of commendation from then FDPD Chief Barry Weber for assisting with the apprehension of a robbery suspect while he was off duty. According to the letter, Knipple was at a local restaurant with his family when he noticed a man acting suspiciously. So he took note of the man's description and the type of vehicle that he was using. Knipple then provided the information to on-duty officers who were then able to locate and arrest the robbery suspect. This is a fine illustration of the fact that police officers are never really off-duty, Weber wrote. The dedication you displayed in this instance ensures that the city of Fort Dodge is a safer place for all citizens. In 1991, after Weber resigned, Knipple was one of 12 applicants for the position of chief of police. Ivan Metzger would eventually get the job. In October 1997, while working as a detective with the FDPD, Knipple was part of a massive drug bust and what was believed to be the largest amphetamines arrest in the city history at the time.
A Fort Dodge man was arrested after FDPD officers executing a search warrant found a pound of amphetamines in his house, vehicle, and on his person. Knipple was also a part-time instructor at Iowa Central Community College for 13 years, where he taught defensive tactics. In 1998, Knipple moved over to the Webster County Sheriff's Office, where he served since. In August 2020, Knipple was involved in a fatal officer-involved shooting when a suicidal female ran at him and other law enforcement officers wielding large knives. The Iowa Attorney General's Office ruled the shooting justified and did not pursue charges against the deputy. Between his time with the FDPD and the WCSO, Knippel has served under nine different administrations. He said of all of them, the best has been under Fleener as sheriff. A lot has changed with policing in those 45 years, Knippel said. The cars, the technology, how they handle different cars, and even the stance they hold when they shoot their guns. Probably one of the most visible changes, however, are that patrol officers don't wear formal patrol hats anymore. We called them the bus driver hats, he said. When Knippel first started his career, he had a perm in his hair, creating a small Afro style which was the fashion at the time. The problem was officers weren't allowed to have their hair touch the tops of their ears or their necks. So, since wearing the patrol hats was mandatory, he'd stuff his curls up into his hat when he was at the station or out on a call. That way, he could pass inspection by the shift commander. Also on the front page, we have an article entitled Ramaswamy, Vows to Shred Bureaucracy. Vivek Ramaswamy is vowing to clean house in Washington, D.C. like no other president has if he is elected. Mass firings are absolutely what I'm bringing to the D.C. bureaucracy, the Republican told a Fort Dodge audience late Tuesday morning. He outlined his plans for thinning out the bureaucracy which he referred to as the Deep State, for about 35 people gathered at Shiny Top Brewing, 520 Central Avenue. Ramaswamy said he will reduce the bureaucracy by 75% if he is elected. He added that he will eliminate the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and the Department of Education. We will get in there and shut them down, he said. The candidate said he has sharp elbows and a deep understanding of laws and the Constitution that will enable him to get that done. He said he would not need the approval of Congress to take those actions because they all are within the powers of the executive branch of the government. We're going to get the executive branch in order, he said. That's where the deep state resides. Ramaswamy said he would eliminate the current civil service system and impose an eight-year term limit on appointed federal officials. During his remarks Tuesday, the candidate also pledged to end affirmative action and racial quotas, which he described as a cancer on our national soul, use the military to defend the northern and southern borders, pardon peaceful, 16, peaceful J6 protesters, 
end birthright citizenship for children of illegal immigrants, bring our oil and gas out of the ground and sell it. Ramswamy described the nation's current political situation in stark terms. We're in the middle of a war in this country, he said. I don't use that word lightly. It's not a war between black and white. It's not even a war between Democrats and Republicans. It's a war between those of us who love the United States of America and our founding ideals, who believe that all men are created equal, who believe that you get ahead in this country based on the content of your character, not the color of your skin, he added. And then on the other side of this war, we have this extreme minority who believes your identity is based on your race, gender, and sexuality, who believe we cannot burn carbon, but at the same time shift that carbon to China and other places in the world, who believe in using our military to protect other countries' borders, but to use it to protect our borders is xenophobic and racist. And finally, on the front page, an article entitled Supervisors Approve Dispatch Center Purchases. The Webster County Telecommunication Center will be receiving some updated console equipment over the next couple months. On Tuesday, the Webster County Board of Supervisors approved a bid to buy the equipment and installation for new dispatcher consoles in the center. According to Brian Hitchcock, Webster County Telecommunications Center Director, the console furniture in the 911 center is well past the life expectancy and has had a number of problems with the hydraulic lift and hardware falling off the consoles. The equipment is more than 12 years old and lacks the safety capabilities newer designs of console furniture have. Hitchcock told the Board of Supervisors that he looked into companies that build this type of equipment and reach out to five to ask for proposals. He received two bids, Evans Furniture of Marshalltown for $105,903.59 and Zybex Systems, Inc. of Littleton, Colorado for $80,510.32. This is more expensive than your typical office furniture, Hitchcock said. Hitchcock told the board, the Zybex proposal met all the requirements of the project and recommended the board approve the bid. Part of the equipment and furniture replacement project will include removing the existing consoles, and Hitchcock received a quote from Unplugged Wireless of Perry for $15,560. In total, the project is going to cost $96,160.32. The consoles will be replaced one at a time so as to not interfere with operations at the dispatch center. The project is expected to be complete by March. In other business, the board also approved the promotion of dispatcher Christy Lumsden to communication manager effective December 25. Lumsden has been a dispatcher for Webster County for seven years. She will receive a salary of $57,000. On page three, we find an article entitled Donald Trump Banned from Colorado Ballot in Ruling by State's Supreme Court. A divided Colorado Supreme Court Tuesday declared former President Donald Trump ineligible for the White House 
under the U.S. Constitution's Insurrection Clause and removed him from the state's presidential primary ballot, setting up a likely showdown in the nation's highest court to decide whether the frontrunner for the GOP nomination can remain in the race. The decision from the court, whose justices were all appointed by Democratic governors, marks the first time in history that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment has been used to disqualify a presidential candidate. A majority of the court holds that Trump is disqualified from holding the office of president under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the court wrote in its 4-3 decision. The Messenger's editorial on page 4 is entitled, Service to His Community is Central to Terry Monkey. When the Fort Dodge City Council ends its business meetings, traditionally the mayor calls for a motion to adjourn. That did not happen Monday evening. Instead, Councilman Terry Moenke called for the motion to adjourn, and when that motion passed, he rapped the gavel on the table to end the meeting. When he did that, he essentially wrapped up his 10-year career as a councilman. It was a decade of service in which he spent thousands of hours working on various projects he felt were necessary for the public good. They included improving the riverfront, updating the infrastructure on the city's northwest side, starting a municipal broadband utility, and even replacing the steps on the front of the municipal building. He also exercised oversight of the city government on behalf of the citizens. In fact, few other council members in recent history would grill city staffers the way Monkey did. Recapping a decade of service on the council barely begins to cover how much Monkey has done for the Fort Dodge community. He started a program called Backpack Buddies, which provided qualifying students with nutritious food to eat on the weekends. Volunteers initially loaded that food into backpacks, giving the program its name. Then, in 2007, inspired by something he saw at an army base, Moenke pr proposed creating a local park in which veterans would be honored by trees planted in their memory. A site alongside Badger Lake was selected, and in 2008, construction of the park began. Today, the site is known as Terry Monkey Veterans Memorial Park. Monkey is a member of the Pleasant Valley Awareness Committee. He has served on the boards of the Almost Home Humane Society of North Central Iowa, the American Red Cross, Fort Dodge Convention and Visitors Bureau, today visit Fort Dodge, and the Paula J. Baber Hospice Home. In 2020, he received the Catalyst Award, the highest honor of the Greater Fort Dodge Growth Alliance. In presenting the award on behalf of the Growth Alliance, Matt Johnson said Moenke is less about talking and more about action. That is a very accurate description. Moenke's other honors include Fort Dodge Noon Lions Citizen of the Year, American Red Cross Heroes of the Heartland Community Impact Award, Character Counts Fort Dodge Pillar of Character Award, Fort Dodge Community Foundation Outstanding Community Volunteer, State of Iowa Governor's Volunteer Award, 
Fort Dodge Veterans Council Veteran of the Year, Iowa Lions Foundation Warren Coleman Honorary Award, Fellow of the Academy Award from the American Academy of Optometry, Diplomat of, Diplomate of the American Board of Optometry, and Fort Dodge District Regional and International Sertoma Awards. What can you say to someone who has done all that? There are only three words that are appropriate. Thank you, sir. Also on the opinion page today, we find an article entitled Help Homeless Families at Christmas Time by Randy Kuhlman, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Fort Dodge Community Foundation and United Way. During Christmas season, many people with the Christmas spirit like to pick a family from a giving tree or work with an organization or church to select a family to provide support for a few Christmas gifts and other items. These thoughtful gestures are always appreciated by these families that have little or nothing. For some, it gives them a Christmas they might not be able to afford on their own. But have you ever wondered how a homeless family with children can even have a Christmas without a home? Today, one out of four children and teens live in a household that is in poverty or very close to it. In fact, many of these families are well below the poverty level. It is estimated that close to 1,000 households in Fort Dodge are living at or below the poverty level, and many are single-parent families headed by the mother who is working in a low-paying job with an annual income ranging from 12000 to $24,000. Trying to raise their families on poverty-level income is extremely difficult and stressful. These families often find themselves in a significant financial crisis in which they can't pay all of their bills for rent, utilities, food, clothing, and transportation. Currently, due to inflation, many of these families are facing homelessness or living in an apartment without utilities such as heat, water, and electricity. United Way staff helps these families that are dealing with severe financial issues, putting them at real risk of becoming homeless or living in a home without heat or water. Here are some real examples of families United Way has and is helping by paying for motel stays while we assist them in finding affordable housing or by providing assistance to keep the water or heat on in their homes. A mother with three children that is two weeks away from becoming homeless. A high school student and her younger siblings became homeless because they had no father in their lives and their mother was institutionalized, leaving the children to fend for themselves. A grandmother facing homelessness after her husband passed away and her single income could not pay her increased rent. A frail elderly woman with terminal cancer is homeless and has no place to go. United Way paid for three nights in a local motel while helping this lady find housing. A single parent family with four children were living in their small rental house for more than two weeks when their water was shut off, making cooking, bathing, washing clothes, or using the toilet impossible. A single parent family loses everything they own in their apartment due to a fire, so they are immediately homeless and without clothing and other basic living items. These are just a few examples of how United Way is helping desperate and impoverished families. 
There are so many more families that we have helped, and our assistance is not feasible without the charitable support we, re we receive from kind-hearted citizens. The needs are high, and the need for United Way financial support is great. We hope during this Christmas season, many citizens will step up and help. A donation to United Way can truly make a difference for so many in need of a helping hand. Citizens interested in donating to United Way can do so by mailing a check payable to United Way of Greater Fort Dodge, 24 North 9th Street, Suite B, Fort Dodge, Iowa. Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Shortly after modern humans arrived in Europe, the Neanderthals disappeared, and scientists think we had something to do with it. Neanderthals, or their direct ancestors, migrated out of Africa and into the Middle East and Europe around 250,000 years ago. Soon, they were well adapted to the environment. Large eyes help them see in the longer nights and darker winters. Stout bodies help them retain heat and handle large prey, and provided space for the large liver and kidneys needed for a diet heavy in protein. Their brains were as big as ours, but spent processing power on their greater visual and motor abilities. This may not have allowed them to develop higher communication or conceptual thinking to match ours, which may have been their downfall. 
modern humans arrived on the scene 45,000 years ago, less physically adapted, but more mentally adaptable. We had cooperative hunting methods superior to the Neanderthals, allowing us to outcompete them for food, and perhaps reducing the large herbivore populations that they depended on. We also had superior tools and weapons. When there were conflicts between the groups, as there have been among tribes throughout history, our superior technology probably allowed us to prevail. But we weren't only fighting. There must have been considerable interbreeding, since we can find 1-3% of the Neanderthal genome in modern man. Which means the Neanderthals never completely disappeared. A little bit of them is alive in us today. I'm Scott Tinker. EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org. Are you among the millions of Americans living with chronic pain? If so, you may think prescription opioids are the solution. The truth is, the benefits of opioids are limited. Opioids only mask the pain. Opioids also come with serious side effects, ranging from nausea to withdrawal symptoms to overdose. As many as 25% of people who are prescribed opioids struggle with addiction. And those who are addicted to opioids are 40 times more likely to move on to heroin. No one wants to live in pain, but no one should put their health at risk to be pain-free. There is another choice, physical therapy. Physical therapists treat pain through movement and exercise, no warning labels required and you get to be an active participant in your care. Choose to treat your pain safely. Choose physical therapy. Visit moveforwardpt.com to find a physical therapist near you. This public service announcement is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association.